As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today, including a speech in three parts by Michelle Alexander, the Vlog Brothers on YouTube, Clint Smith on All Deaf Poetry, Jesse Williams' speech from the BET Awards, Cat Black from YouTube, and a James Earl Jones reading of a Frederick Douglass speech. By numerous philosophers and theologians, that any society, any civilization, must be judged by how it treats its most vulnerable members and its prisoners. King would no doubt agree with that assessment. And in considering how we fare in that regard, I find myself thinking of people like Susan Burton, people who have cycled in and out of our nation's prison system in this era of mass incarceration. In this post-King, post-Civil Rights era, a time when our prison population has more than quintupled and millions of people, overwhelmingly poor people of color, have been permanently locked up or locked out, stripped of the very civil and human rights Dr. King and so many others risked their lives for and some even died for. I think of Susan, whose son was killed by the police. A police cruiser barreling down her street in Los Angeles ran over her five-year-old boy. She received no apology, no real acknowledgement of her loss, and she fell into a deep, deep depression, racked with grief, and she ultimately became addicted to crack cocaine. Now, if Susan had been wealthy, if she had even been solidly middle class with a good job and a good health care plan, she undoubtedly would have qualified for many, many hours of therapy and counseling. She likely would have qualified for very good legal prescription drugs that would help her cope with her severe depression and grief. But no, things were different for Susan. Impoverished, Living in L.A., she became addicted to crack cocaine and thus began her odyssey of cycling in and out of prison for 15 years. 15 years. Every time, prosecutors said, just take the deal. We'll give you three years rather than eight. This time, we'll give you Five years rather than 12. This time, this time we'll cut you a break. Just take the deal. We'll give you two years rather than six. One plea deal after another. Never offered drug treatment, only shown to a prison cell. Every time she was released, pushed out onto the streets, unable to find work, no housing, often sleeping on the streets, cycling in and out of our prison system for 15 years until by no small miracle, she was granted access to a private drug treatment facility. She got clean and was given a job. 
she decided that she was going to dedicate the rest of her life to ensuring that no other woman would have to go through what she went through. And she began by going down to Skid Row in Los Angeles and meeting women, prisoners, as they would get off the prison bus on Skid Row. Get off the bus carrying nothing but a cardboard box, carrying their belongings, little or no money, turned out on the street. And she would say to these women who were strangers to her, just come home with me. You can sleep on my couch. You can sleep on my floor. You don't have to turn to the streets. I'll take care of you. I'll give you food. I'll give you a safe place. Just come home with me. Susan Burton now runs five safe homes for women in Los Angeles. Women released from prison. Her organization is called A New Way of Life. She prides help finding jobs, housing, helps to reunite women with their families. And beyond that, she is organizing formerly incarcerated people to demand the restoration of their basic civil and human rights. Clearly, clearly Susan has caught up to King. But what about the rest of us? Now, what I have to say on this point will not be popular. It is not the sunny, cheerful message that is expected on the day after we inaugurated for the second time our nation's first black president. But I believe it to be the truth, and it implicates me, and it implicates everyone in this room. And the truth is this. We have allowed a human rights nightmare to occur on our watch. In the years since Dr. King's death, a vast new system of racial and social control has emerged from the ashes of slavery and Jim Crow. A system of mass incarceration that no doubt has Dr. King turning in his grave today. The mass incarceration of poor people of color in the United States is tantamount to a new caste-like system, one that shuttles our young people from decrepit, underfunded schools to brand new high-tech prisons. It is a system that locks poor people, overwhelmingly poor people of color, into a permanent second-class status nearly as effectively as earlier systems of racial and social control once did. It is, in my view, the moral equivalent of Jim Crow. Now, I am always eager to admit that there was a time when I rejected this kind of talk out of hand. There was a time when I rejected comparisons between mass incarceration and slavery and mass incarceration and Jim Crow, believing that those kinds of claims and comparisons were exaggerations, were distortions, were hyperbole. In fact, there was a time when I thought that people who made those kinds of claims and those kinds of comparisons we're actually doing more harm than good to efforts to reform our criminal justice system and achieve greater racial equality in the United States. But what a difference a decade makes. For after years of working as a civil rights lawyer and advocate, representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality, and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color, and attempting to assist people who have been released from prison re-enter into a society that had never shown much use for them in the first place, I had a series of experiences that began what I now call my awakening. I began to awaken to a racial reality that is just so obvious to me now 
that what seems odd in retrospect is that I could have been blind to it for so long. As I write into the intro, in the introduction to my book, The New Jim Crow, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of our society than the language we use to justify it. In the era of color blindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices that we supposedly left behind. Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways in which it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, exclusion from jury service, suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America, we have merely redesigned it. Tuesday. I want to talk about racism today, but I'm already pretty nervous because one, I am definitely not an expert, and two, racism is big and complex and nuanced, and the internet, God bless it, doesn't really specialize in nuance. But a bunch of recent surveys have shown that around 75% of white Americans do not think that there is racial bias in the criminal justice system, and a slight majority of white Americans don't think that racism is a significant problem in America. But so far as I can tell, Hank, whether systemic bias against African Americans exists in the United States is not really a debatable point. So I want to look today at some data. Okay, let's begin with the criminal justice system. So last year, the U.S. Sentencing Commission released a report showing that African Americans American men's prison sentences were on average 20% longer than white men's prison sentences when they were convicted of similar crimes. And in fact, in the past decade, the racial gap in sentencing has been widening. Also, black people and white people use illegal drugs at almost identical rates, but black people are three times more likely to be arrested for drug possession. Also, African Americans are far more likely to be stopped and searched by police, at least in the jurisdictions that keep good records, even though in many cases, the contraband hit rate, the chance that an officer will find something actually illegal, is higher among white people. By the way, there's links about all this stuff in the doobly-doo. But there's just so much, Hank. I mean, people convicted of crimes and then later exonerated by DNA evidence are disproportionately black. Black kids are more likely to be tried as adults than white kids and more likely to be sentenced to life in prison. And even after release, black former inmates are less likely to get callbacks from potential employers than white former inmates, regardless of the crime committed. Speaking of which, let's turn to the job market. So one of the things that makes it so hard to isolate race when trying to study it is that so many other factors are at work in systemic injustice, right? Like there's class and health and wealth none of which are fully separable from race. But okay, so a large 2004 University of Chicago study submitted thousands of resumes to a huge variety of employers, and all the resumes were completely identical, except 
for the applicant's name. It could be Emily or Brendan or Lakeisha or Jamal. And Lakeisha and Jamal got 50% fewer callbacks than Emily and Brendan, despite having literally identical resumes. Hank, I'm pretty sure that's about race. In fact, studies consistently show racial bias in employment and hiring in the U.S. and also around the world, but I only have four minutes, so links in the doobly-doo. In education, again, the evidence of systemic bias is pretty overwhelming. For instance, among American high schools with mostly black and Latino students, only 74% offer Algebra 2 as a class, just 66% offer Chemistry. The percentages for mostly white schools are much higher. When it comes to healthcare, you could write a book about racial bias, and in fact, people have, but I'll just quote from an American College of Physicians report from 2010. Overwhelming evidence shows that racial and ethnic minorities are prone to poor quality healthcare than white Americans, even when factors such as insurance status are controlled. And as the report points out, by some measures, including life expectancy, which is really the ultimate measure, the disparity has been increasing for decades. Now, like, I want to be clear that most of this research establishes correlations, which isn't the same thing as causation. Like, certainly the tremendous economic inequality right now in the United States is a factor in racial disparities. But then, of course, race also factors into class and economic status. Like, for instance, much of the racial wealth disparity in the U.S. is due to inheritance. White people are far more likely to inherit money and land than black people are. And that's due in large part to the fact that for almost all of American history, it was basically impossible for African Americans to accrue wealth. Now, Hank, I'm obviously just scratching the surface here, but to deny the existence of systemic racism is to deny a huge body of evidence indicating that racial bias affects almost every facet of American life. Hank, the last thing I want to say is that while I think statistics and data are really important, I also think it's important to listen to the voices of people who have been affected by racism. Data is cold in a way that humans are not, and to really understand these statistics and their impact on the real lives of real people, we need to find ways to listen to those people. Listen carefully now. Listen carefully now. Listen up, get your ears open. Speak no evil before you've heard mine. This is my rhyme and it lives like a spider in trapdoor holes in my head. Now let open, you pray to find. I got a hunger for hearing in mind. I absorb every sound way underground. Sitting ready to pounce when I like a sound. Am I empty headed or dumb? Because I talk a little or none. Or am I listening? I'm not trying to drive you away, nor am I thinking of something to say. Yeah, I'm just listening. Just listening. There are more African-American adults under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised than in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, explicitly denying the right to vote on the basis of race. The 15th Amendment prohibited all laws that explicitly denied the right to vote on the basis of race. But during the Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests circumvented the 15th Amendment and operated to deny African-Americans a chance to vote. Well, today, in many states, felon disenfranchisement laws accomplish what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. Now, this doesn't affect just some small segment of the African-American community. To the contrary, in many large urban areas today, 
More than half of working age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. In fact, in some cities like Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, DC, the list could go on. In some cities, the statistics are far worse. In fact, it was reported in Chicago But if you take into account, if you take into account prisoners, if you actually count prisoners as people, and keep in mind that prisoners are excluded from poverty statistics and unemployment data, thus masking the severity of racial inequality in the United States. But if you actually count prisoners as people in the Chicago area, nearly 80% of working age African American men criminal records are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast, not class, caste, a group of people defined largely by race, relegated to a permanent second-class status by law. Now, I find today that when I tell people that I now believe that mass incarceration is like a new Jim Crow, a new caste-like system, people react with this complete disbelief. They just say, how can you say that? How can you say that? Our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control, it's a system of crime control. And if black folks would just stop running around committing so many crimes, we wouldn't have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their civil and human rights. Well, therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration, namely that it's been driven by crime and crime rates. It's not true. It's just not true. Our prison population quintupled in the space of 30 years. Quintupled. We have gone from a prison population of about 300,000 to an incarcerated population now of over 2 million. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But again, this can't be explained simply by crime or crime rates. No. No. During that same period of time that our incarceration rates increased exponentially, crime rates fluctuated. Went up, went down, went back up again, went down again. And today, as bad as crime rates are in many parts of the country, nationally, crime rates are at historical lows. But incarceration rates have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains this sudden explosion in incarceration, the birth of a penal system unprecedented in world history, if not crime and crime rates? Well, the answer is the war on drugs and the get tough movement the wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States. Drug convictions alone, just drug convictions, accounted for about two-thirds of the increase in the federal prison system and more than half of the increase in the state prison system between 1985 and 2000, the period of the greatest expansion 
of our prison system. To get a sense of how large a contribution the war on drugs has made to mass incarceration, consider this. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Now, most Americans violate drug laws in some form in their lifetime. Most do. But the enemy in this war has been racially defined. Not by accident, this drug war has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, even though studies have consistently shown now for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color do not use or sell illegal drugs at higher rates than whites, or sell. Now that defies our basic racial stereotypes about who a drug dealer is. Picture in your mind a drug dealer and who do you see? There's actually been studies conducted asking that particular question. In the mid-1990s, a national survey was conducted asking people to close their eyes and imagine a drug criminal and report what they saw. Over 95% of respondents pictured someone African-American. Only 5% pictured someone of any other racial or ethnic group. So when we think of drug criminals in the United States, typically think of people who are black and brown. But studies have consistently shown that people of all races use and sell drugs at remarkably similar rates. And in fact, where significant differences in the data can be found, some studies suggest that white youth are more likely to engage in illegal drug dealing than black youth. But that's not what you would guess by taking a peek inside our nation's prisons and jails, which are overflowing with black and brown drug offenders. In some states, 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison have been one race. African-American. Now, I know that many people who see this data say, oh, yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame, but, you know, we need to get tough on them, those folks in the hood. Because that's where the violent offenders can be found. That's where the drug kingpins can be found. What maybe people don't realize, though, is that this drug war has never been aimed primarily at rooting out the violent offenders or the drug kingpins. No. Federal funding has flowed in this war to those state and local law enforcement agencies that boost the sheer numbers of drug arrests. It's been a numbers game. Law enforcement agencies have been rewarded in cash for the sheer numbers of people swept into the system for drug offenses, which helps to explain why so many police officers go out looking for the so-called low-hanging fruit, stopping, frisking, searching, tossing as many people as possible in an effort to get their numbers up. And to make matters worse, federal drug forfeiture laws allow state and local law enforcement agencies to keep for their own use up to 80% of the cash, cars, homes seized from suspected drug offenders. You don't have to be convicted, just suspected of a drug offense. Law enforcement could take your cash, seize your car, Thus granting to law enforcement a direct monetary interest, not in ending drug abuse, 
or drug addiction or drug-related crime, but in the longevity of this war itself. And the results have been predictable. People of color have been arrested in mass for primarily non-violent drug offenses. In 2005, for example, four out of five drug arrests were for simple possession. Only one out of five were sales. Most people in state prison for drug offenses have no history of violence or even significant selling activity. And in the 1990s, the period of the greatest escalation of the drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession, a drug that's been shown to be less harmful, or at least less addictive than alcohol or tobacco, and at least, if not more prevalent, in middle-class white communities and on college campuses, as it is in the hood. But by waging this war almost exclusively in the hood, we've managed to create this vast new racial undercaste in an astonishingly short period of time. to five of the presidents who owned slaves while they were in office. George Washington, when you won the revolution, how many of your soldiers did you send from the battlefield to the cotton field? How many had to trade in their rifles for plows? Can you blame the slaves who ran away to fight for the British because at least the Redcoats were honest about their oppression, Thomas Jefferson? When you told Sally Hemings that you would free her children if she remained your mistress, did you think there was honor in your ultimatum? Did you think we wouldn't be able to recognize the assault in your signature that is raping your slave when you disguise it as bribery, make it less of a crime? When you wrote the Declaration of Independence, Do you ever intend for black people to have freedom over their bodies? James Madison, when you wrote to Congress that black people should count as three-fifths of a person, how long did you have to look at your slaves to figure out the map? Was it easy to chop them up? Did you think they'd be happy being more than just half-human James Monroe? When you proposed sending slaves back to Africa, did black bodies feel like rented tools? When you branded them, did a scar in their chest include an expiration date? When you named the country Liberia, were you trying to be ironic? Does this really count as liberation? Andrew Jackson, was the trail of tears not enough for you? Was killing Cherokee, Choctaw, Tweaks, Seminoles not enough to quench your imperialism? How many brown bodies do you have to bulldoze before you can call it progress, Mr. Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Jackson, when you put your hand on the Bible and swore to protect this country? Let's be honest in who you were talking about. When the first Independence Day fireworks set the sky aflame, don't forget where we were watching from. So when you remember Jefferson's genius, don't forget the slaves who built the bookshelves in his library. When you remember Jackson's victories in war, don't forget what he was fighting to preserve. When you sing that this country was founded on freedom, don't forget the duet of shackles dragging against the ground my entire life. I've been taught how perfect this country was, but no one ever told me about the pages torn out of my textbooks, how black and brown bodies have been bludgeoned for three centuries and find no place in the curriculum. 
Oppression doesn't disappear just because you decided not to teach us that chapter. If you only hear one side of the story, at some point you have to question who the writer is. You better check on where you come from. Only way you gon' see where you going, young dog. Young nigga, know your history, dog. Know your history, dog. Know your history, Without it, you ain't got nothing. This show only exists in its current form thanks to those who chip in a few bucks each month to keep us going. And in order to do more with the show, as we hope to do, we need some more help. As thanks to members of the show who sign up with a monthly contribution, there's bonus content that I do once a week, usually 20 to 30 minutes of an extended commentary, you know, about this or that. Uh, the most recent bonus episode is very fitting for today's topic. A listener and I have been conversing in the comments section of the show blog recently because he's got some very flawed thoughts on racism and sexism, and I've been trying to straighten them out. So I went ahead and did an extended commentary about why it is not enough to say that that classism and economics are causing all of the disparities we see in society, systemic racism and sexism, in addition to and in concert with classism, as well as a whole bunch of other factors, also contribute to all of our various ills. So if you want to hear me go into all of that in detail and help support the production of this show, simply go to the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com, choose your level of support, and get that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing you're helping keep this little independent show going strong. And stick around at the end of today's episode for a limited-time special offer. You're not going to want to miss it. Thanks so much for your support. Now, where has the U.S. Supreme Court been in all of this? Where has the U.S. Supreme Court been? Well, far from protecting the interests of discreet and insular minorities, Far from doing that, the U.S. Supreme Court has been busy defending this war at every turn. The U.S. Supreme Court over the last couple of decades has eviscerated Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, granting to the police the authority to stop, frisk, search just about anyone, anywhere, without any probable cause or reasonable suspicion not a shred of evidence of criminal activity as long as they get consent. Now, what's consent? Consent is when a police officer walks up to a young man. Officer walks up to a young man with one hand on his gun and says, son, put your arms up in the air so I can search you, see if you got anything on you. Kid says, uh-huh. That young man just waived his Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures, law enforcement doesn't have to have a shred of evidence to support that frisk now that the young man has consented, of course, believing that he really had no ability to refuse consent and walk away. Now, you might say, well, these are just isolated instances, but the reality is, is these isolated incidents add up to enormous racial disparities. The New York Police Department reported that in one year alone, just one year alone, it stopped and frisked more than 600,000 people. One year alone. Overwhelmingly black and brown men. But the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that we cannot challenge these racial disparities in a court of law. In a series of cases beginning with McCleskey versus Kemp and Armstrong versus United States, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled explicitly 
that it doesn't matter how overwhelming the statistical evidence might be. It does not matter how severe the racial disparities are. Unless you can offer proof of conscious intentional bias tantamount to an admission by a police officer or a law enforcement official, you can't even state a claim for racial bias in the criminal justice system today. So many of the racial profiling cases that I was litigating 10 years ago can't even be filed today. The U.S. Supreme Court has closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias at every stage of the criminal justice process, from stops and searches to plea bargaining and sentencing. In so many ways, the U.S. Supreme Court has effectively immunized this system of mass incarceration from judicial scrutiny for racial bias, much in the same way that the U.S. Supreme Court once rallied to the defense of slavery and rallied again to the defense of Jim Crow in earlier eras. But of course, just being swept into the system with little hope of being able to challenge the bias or tactics that got you there is just the beginning for so many. Because once you've been swept in and branded a criminal or felon, you're then ushered into a parallel social universe in which the very right supposedly won in the civil rights movement no longer apply to you. You may be denied the right to vote for a period of years or the rest of your life, depending on the state you live in. You're deemed ineligible for jury service for the rest of your life if you've been branded a felon. For the rest of your life, discrimination in employment will not only be legal, but absolutely routine. You'll be forced to check that box on employment applications asking the dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And it doesn't matter if that felony happened a few weeks ago, a few months ago, or 45 years ago. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box, knowing full well your application's going straight to the trash. Many people will say to me, oh, come on, stop making excuses for people. Yeah, you know, when you get out of prisons, it's hard, it's tough, but if you try hard, I mean, if you really work at it, put yourself out there some, you know, you, could, you can get a job. I mean, you could get a job at McDonald's or Burger King or something. Getting a job at McDonald's is no easy feat if you have a felony record. Housing discrimination, perfectly legal and absolutely routine. Release from prison, public housing projects, as well as private landlords free to discriminate against you, close their doors. Discrimination in public benefits, legal and routine. In fact, under federal law, you are deemed ineligible even for food stamps for the rest of your life if you've been convicted of a drug felony. Now, fortunately, many states have now opted out of the federal ban on food stamps for drug offenders. But it's still the case that hundreds, thousands of people can't even get food stamps to feed themselves because they were once caught with drugs. Now, what are people released from prison expected to do? You're tossed out, out on the curb. Can't get a job. Can't get housing. Even food, food stamps might be off limits to you. What do you expect it to do? Well, apparently what we expect people to do is to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support, which continues to accrue while you're in prison. And in a growing number of states, you're then expected to pay back the costs of your imprisonment.
And paying back all these fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support may well be a condition of your probation or parole. And then get this. If you're one of the lucky few, the very few, who actually manages to get a job right out of prison, up to 100% of your wages could be garnished. Tony scored 10 kilos from a pair of shiny black shoes With an eagle in his haircut and an earphone on his tongue After he got busted, he couldn't make no bail Cause we're making money off the stash And money off the jail But we're winning the war on drugs We're winning the war on drugs Grace Lord and pass we turn now to actor Jesse Williams. Oh, he's best known for his role on the TV show Grey's Anatomy. But on Sunday night, he earned a standing ovation when he addressed the BET Awards. As he accepted the humanitarian award, Jesse Williams paid homage to police shooting victims, including Rakia Boyd and Tamir Rice, who would have turned 14 years old on Saturday if he hadn't been killed by police in Cleveland. We turn now to Jesse Williams' speech. Before we get into it, I just want to say, you know, I brought my parents out tonight. I just want to thank them uh, for being here, for teaching me um, to focus on comprehension over career, that uh, they make sure I learn what the schools were afraid to teach us, and also to thank my amazing wife for changing my life. Now, this award... This is not for me. This is for the real organizers all over the country, the activists, the civil rights attorneys, the struggling parents, the families, the teachers, the students that are realizing that a system built to divide and impoverish and destroy us cannot stand if we do. All right. It's kind of basic mathematics. The more we learn about who we are and how we got here, the more we will mobilize. Now, this is also in particular for the black women, in particular, who have spent their lifetimes dedicated to nurturing everyone before themselves. We can and will do better for you. Now, what we've been doing is looking at the data, and we know that police somehow manage to de-escalate, disarm, and not kill white people every day. So what's going to happen is we are going to have equal rights and justice in our own country or we will restructure their function and ours. Now, I got more, y'all. Yesterday would have been young Tamir Rice's 14th birthday. So I don't want to hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by and a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television and then going home to make a sandwich. Tell Rakia Boyd how it's so much better to live in 2012 than it is to live in 1612 or 1712. Tell that to Eric Garner. Tell that to Sandra Bland. Tell that to Dorian Hunt. Now the thing is, though, all of us in here getting money, that alone isn't going to stop this. All right. Now, dedicating our lives, dedicating our lives to getting money just to give it right back for someone's brand on our body. When we spent centuries praying with brands on our bodies and now we pray to get paid for brands on our bodies. There has been no war 
that we have not fought and died on the front lines of. There has been no job we haven't done. There's no tax they haven't levied against us, and we've paid all of them. But freedom is somehow always conditional here. You're free, they keep telling us. But she, she, she would have been alive if she hadn't acted so free. Now, freedom is always coming in the hereafter. But you know what, though? The hereafter is a hustle. We want it now. And let's get, let's get a couple things straight. Just a little side note. The burden of the brutalized is not to comfort the bystander. That's not our job. All right, stop with all that. If you have a critique for the resistance, for our resistance, then you better have an established record of critique of our oppression. If you have no interest, if you have no interest in equal rights for black people, then do not make suggestions to those who do. Sit down. We've been floating this country on credit for centuries, yo. And we're done watching and waiting while this invention called whiteness uses and abuses us, burying black people out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment like oil, black gold, ghettoizing and demeaning our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius, and then trying us on like costumes before discarding our bodies like rinds of strange fruit. The thing is, though, the thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging. From the poplar trees So as some of you guys might know, I uploaded a video to Tumblr the other day and long story short, it went viral. I was really blown away by all of the positive feedback that I got and I was really elated to hear that so many people understood what I was saying. But there were of course people who didn't get it and thought that I was just a massive racist because I said white people in my video as opposed to saying some white people. Now in this video, I'm discussing explicitly how the white people in my life, some of my white friends, had in light of the Ferguson decision started posting some really racist things on social media. You have to understand that for a lot of people of color and for some white people, especially those of us that live in mostly white areas, Things are a little tense right now because I think we all kind of have this collective shocking realization that racism still isn't over in this country and that it's a lot worse than we actually thought it was. It actually really annoyed me that people kept accusing me of being a racist against white people. I mean, it's kind of ironic because my boyfriend is white, but you know, this whole conversation and debate over my supposed racism against white people has made me want to make this video. In this video, we're going to talk about prejudice and racism and how, while they may be similar, they are not the same thing. I know that a lot of people in these conversations like to reference the dictionary, so in this video, we're going to be using dictionary.com. So let's start with prejudice. 
Prejudice. One, an unfavorable opinion or feeling formed beforehand or without knowledge, thought, or reason. Two, any preconceived opinion or feeling either favorable or unfavorable. Three, unreasonable feelings, opinions, or attitudes, especially of a hostile nature regarding a racial, religious, or national group. Four, such attitudes considered collectively. The war against prejudice is never ending. Five, damage or injury, detriment, a law that operated to the prejudice of the majority. The definition of prejudice is pretty easy to understand. You have pre, which means before, and you have judis, which obviously connotes judgment. So prejudice is basically when you make a judgment about somebody before you've even gotten to know them. For example, assuming that all Mexicans are in this country illegally is a prejudice. And it's a prejudice because before actually knowing the person's legal status, you already decided that they were here illegally. Prejudice is often conflated with racism. And that's always kind of frustrated me because while prejudice may absolutely inform racism, these terms are not mutually exclusive. So let's go back to dictionary.com for the definition of racism. Racism. One, a belief or doctrine that inherent differences among various human races determine cultural or individual achievement, usually involving the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to rule others. Two, a policy, system of government, etc., based upon or fostering such doctrine of discrimination. Three, hatred or intolerance to a race or other races. Now, when looking at the word racism, you've got the word race, and then you have the suffix ism. The suffix ism is used to describe a distinctive doctrine, theory, system, or practice. See, racism is more than just a prejudice. It's a system. Racism is a system of supremacy. In America, that system of supremacy benefits white people or people who are white passing. When I talk about racism, I'm talking about a system. I'm talking about a system that celebrated the genocide of the Native Americans. I'm talking about a system that said at one point in time that black people were worth less than one whole person. And I'm talking about a system that has allowed people of color to suffer at the hands of white people in the name of supremacy. White people whose crimes went unpunished because it fit the narrative that the society was trying to perpetuate. I'm talking about a system of supremacy that is so intense and so pervasive that people don't even realize that it's there. I have had so many white people tell me that racism ended when slavery ended. And this frustrates me because not only does this say a lot about the state of education in America, but it also makes it clear to me that people don't understand how young this country is. This country is a lot younger than most countries. These things that we learned about in history class, about slavery and about Jim Crow and about segregation, are not that far removed, actually. Segregation only ended 50 years ago. The repercussions of slavery have made it very hard for people of color to create a livelihood that would support their future generations to come. Keep in mind that my father was alive during Jim Crow, and he's still alive. Now back to the initial topic. Does racism against white people exist? 
Well, I would say that it does if you live in a country that is more homogeneously non-white. White people will experience racism in those situations because the system of supremacy that's been set up in the country does not favor white people. Places like Japan and many parts of Asia are perfect examples of this. It's also worth noting that whiteness is a construct, and in America there are certain people that we view as white that in Europe are not quite viewed as white. Now a lot of people misheard what I said in that video, and they thought that I was trying to say that all white people are racist. Which isn't what I was saying, but let's pretend that I did. Now if I were to say that all white people were racist, that would be a prejudice against white people rather than racism against white people. Why? Because there's no system in place that uses that prejudice as a valid reason to oppress white people. People of color can absolutely be prejudiced against white people, but it's worth mentioning that a lot of the times this is a survival mechanism. In America, a lot of people of color grow up with stories from their parents about how white people treated them when they were children. When a person of color is discussing their genuine fear of white people because of things done to them or things done to their family, it's extremely unhelpful to swoop in and say that not all white people are that way. And it's also unhelpful to call them racist because they fear racist attacks. For some people of color in certain areas, fearing white people is how they avoid being attacked. And people are asking me, like, how do we solve racism? How do we get it? How do we fight against it? Da, 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 da. Well, one thing that you don't do to solve racism is drown out the voices of people of color. If we want to end racism, we're going to have to acknowledge that it exists and do what we can to not repeat the mistakes of yesteryear. Racism is a curable disease. Medicine of love is the remedy we need. Making feelings ease, hostility seeds. Racism is a curable disease. Racism is a curable disease. Medicine of love is the remedy we need. Making feelings ease, hostility seeds. Racism is a curable Change. Easy is way for change. It's from within. It's from within. Nation, many cultures. One nation, many cultures. Let the healing begin. Let the healing begin. In this holiday special, we begin with the words of Frederick Douglass. Born into slavery around 1818, Douglass became a key leader of the abolitionist movement. On July 5, 1852, in Rochester, New York, he gave one of his most famous speeches, the meaning of July 4th for the Negro. He was addressing the Rochester Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society. This is James Earl Jones reading the historic address during a performance of Howard Zinn's Voices of a People's History of the United States. He was introduced by Howard Zinn. Frederick Douglass, once a slave, became a brilliant and powerful leader of the anti-slavery movement. In 1852, he was asked to speak in celebration of the 4th of July. Fellow citizens, pardon me and allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration of independence extended to us and am i therefore 
called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess their benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us, I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes that would, that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear I would today pour forth a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced.
We just heard clips featuring a speech in three parts by Michelle Alexander about the topic of her book, The New Jim Crow, a video about racism by the numbers by the Vlog Brothers on YouTube, Clint Smith read his poem, History Reconsidered, we heard Jesse Williams' recent speech from the BET Awards, Cat Black from YouTube broke down the difference between racism and prejudice, and finally we just heard Frederick Douglass's famous speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, as read by James Earl Jones. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland, just listening to the last episode about the sit-in in the Senate, and uh, I've been going round and round with some conservatives that I talk to, and uh, i got to tell you, they're all literally up in arms, no pun intended, and uh, I find it amazing. Their argument is that the government is now sitting in to deny people's civil liberties to own a gun, their rights to deny people this. And it kills me that, in essence, what they're saying is that a person's right to own a gun is trumping someone else's right to live. Because, unfortunately, despite the arguments of what you want to call a gun, a weapon, a tool, whatever, guns were designed to kill things. Period. End of story. That was their intention. Whatever you may be doing with them now is unequivocal because I'm tired of a lot of these guys and girls making the unrealistic comparison that cars kill people too and we shouldn't ban cars. Now, it's been brought up to me trying to knock me off my foundation that will even the ACLU is against this, the ACLU is against it. And I understand that that's a very good point that they're making. But the problem is most of these people that are making the point about the ACLU to me usually hate the ACLU and think it's a bunch of nonsense whenever it is going after their rights. <laughs> so all of a sudden, because the ACLU's position is in line with theirs, now all of a sudden, this group that is a bunch of nonsense, now all of a sudden has their shit together. And it bothers me that people don't even see how ridiculous their arguments are. Now, the guns themselves. The one clip on the last show was talking about due process and how the ACLU is all about uh, due process. And they talked about the problems with the no-fly list. A lot of conservatives that I talk to have no problem with no-fly lists, no problem with denying people those rights whatsoever. Because, quite frankly, a lot of these people don't fly. Now, these people do own guns. So all of a sudden, whenever the government does something that might want to take gun, now because it directly affects them, they've got a dog in the fight, and now they care. The third point, and again, it's just maddening to try to reason with, with people who just have this, you know, that like uh, Jim Jeffrey says, that continual loop of, you know, don't take my guns, don't take my guns. On top of that, you take a look at the guns themselves. They are a weapon of war, period. You can say this has been varied, this has been modified, this is this, this is that. It is a weapon. Problem is, everyone has weapons, so the police now have SWAT teams for everything. People don't realize that the cops 
go in with these SWAT teams and with the brute uh, strength because they're terrified of what people have. Now, the last thing, I know this is long, a lot of conservatives I, I know say that the government can never come after the people. The U.S. Army, the, the military will never attack U.S. citizens. Okay, so if that's the case, what in the hell do you need a Second Amendment for? If you're so goddamn sure that the government isn't going to come after people, why the hell do you have guns? So it's just, it's a huge hole in their own logic that they don't even see. And it's just, it's infuriating, Jay. Try to, try to point these things out, and then all you do is turn around and get personally attacked. So, anyway, love the show. Keep it up. Hi, Jay. David here in New York. I wanted to comment on your show. I do love it, but I've been finding it difficult to listen to sometimes, partially because I always have to scroll through and see, are they playing, how much are they playing the Young Turks today? And today was no exception. Uh, as a gay man, um, after Pulse, I had a big shock watching a lot of straight people do this whole dance of saying, well, I'll bet he's a closet case. And then when things started coming out that he probably was a closet case, go, well, I was right. And today we got to hear Sank Unger from the Young Turks doing that same thing. And the thing is, he's not wrong. He had a lot of really good points, but I didn't hear him really say anything about what we're supposed to do about this, except just don't hate gay people. And that hasn't worked since I came out of the closet in 1994. So... I want to tell everybody who has those thoughts of, well, he's just a closet case. What that sends to us and what a lot of my gay friends and I have talked about is that that really says that we have nothing to fear from straight people. We have just have something to fear from other gay people. It doesn't do anything to help our causes. It doesn't do anything to further LGBT rights. It simply says, it simply the place, places the blame somewhere else. It, in this case, it. A lot of people are upset if, if you try and place the blame on Islam, and that's, I, yes, that is wrong. But it doesn't do anything to place the blame on other gay people as well. And unless you have something further to say, there's really no point to go, well, I was right that he was a closet case. It's upsetting. And that got followed up immediately by a voicemail with someone saying that she felt that Gay clubs should not be considered sanctuaries because they are, they serve liquor. They're there to be a sanctuary to get away from straight people telling us what to do. End of story. No one asked you. That's the point of all of this. That is the point of why we need these spaces. That is the point of why it is so frustrating to hear people say that they were right about the, the shooter being a closet case and not doing anything further. I'm really tired of people not doing anything further after not listening to gay people and not listening to trans people and not listening to what we are saying and what we are doing and completely dismissing our, our entire life stories only to be right about something. Um, I hope that's not too aggressive, but right now I'm just... I've gone through so many emotions, and right now I am mad as hell with the progressive community when I see shit like this. We're so much better than that, and it doesn't do any good to defer the blame. It doesn't any do. It doesn't do any good to 
not propose something to be done and it doesn't do any good to then get mad when gay people say, hey, wait a second, it sounds like you're telling me that the only thing I have to fear is another gay person with a gun. Thank you very much. Love your show. Keep it up. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick response to David from New York, who we just heard from. I I found his message fascinating and completely unexpected. So... I'm definitely not going to refute what he is saying. That is not my place to do that. I hope you all understand. Uh, I will, however, give my perspective, and and hopefully it, it, that will explain why that clip made it on the show and why I didn't find it objectionable at all. Um, but what I would really love is to hear from anyone else, especially from the LGBTQ community, who either shares David's thoughts or has thoughts that are completely the opposite of him or anywhere in between. I would love to hear more perspectives to help me understand uh, and wrap my mind around what, what David is um, pointing out. My perspective on, we'll just go with, you know, the, the clip in particular that David referred to from the young Turks. Let's just assume for a moment that the reason the shooter in Orlando uh, did what he did was because he was, uh, gay and self-hating and had all these confused emotions and maybe it was partly for revenge, you know, there was that uh, idea, and partly it was because he grew up in a, you know, hyper-conservative religious household where he was told his whole life that being gay was evil and that made him hate himself. Let's, let's just assume for a moment that we can know for a fact that that happened. The way I interpret the clips, like the one from the Young Turks, as well as many others who said very similar things, is that it didn't have anything to do with the fact that the guy was gay, and it didn't have anything to do with the fact that he was closeted. It had to do with the underlying reasons for why he may have been closeted. So, you know, David's perspective, what he described is that it sounded like progressive talk show hosts were saying, well, it's because he was gay and closeted, and I guess we need to be afraid of closeted gay people. I don't see it that way at all, you know, because there are plenty of gay people who are closeted for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with self-hatred or anger or anything like that. They may just be in a situation where it's unsafe to come out. There are a lot of people in that situation. So the the way I hear it is that, uh, you know, that line of argument saying, look, it's really destructive that he was closeted and gay because he hated himself. It's because of the poisonous rhetoric and socialization that we have in society, that uh, this conservative, very often religious idea that gay people are fundamentally different or fundamentally lesser or fundamentally bad and destructive or, or that they need to have fewer rights or different rights at the very least or, you know, that they're damaging to families or children or whatever. Like, all of that super toxic, terrible stuff, if you're susceptible to those kinds of ideas, then, I mean, if if you're straight, that might just make you hate a group of people. But if you're gay, oh man, like, that makes you hate a group of people that you're a member of 
that's what's so toxic and dangerous. So I, I, I didn't think that sort of making the argument, hey, like, let's not uh, say these terrible things and let's not hate this group if you want to if you want to avoid, uh, you know, a shooting like what happened to Pulse, um, I, I didn't see that as sort of, you know, empty rhetoric or, or, or blaming a closeted gay guy. I saw it as blaming the same toxic rhetoric that leads to all of the discrimination that the LGBT community faces. Everything from marriage rights to, you know, being able to serve openly in the military to the bathroom laws, you know, it, it, the whole spectrum, everything that we've been talking about for decades now, it, it, all of the problems stem from the hatred. None of it stems from being gay or being gay and closeted. So, so Hopefully that explains at least why I liked that clip and was happy to play it, uh, because if, if I had interpreted it at all the way David had, then I, I would have found it objectionable as well, and, and it wouldn't have been on the show. So hopefully that clears that up, at least from my perspective. But like I said, I, I would love to hear from more people to help clarify or, or help me understand um, you know, a, a different perspective on this. Second of all, today... Uh, as I mentioned before, I have a big announcement. Big fundraiser is starting today. It's going to run through all of July. I do this each year. You may have heard me before. I, I like to raise money for climate change organizations doing excellent work fighting climate change. So I like to raise money for 350.org and the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, which is a fantastic local organization where I used to work back a few years ago. They, they function right in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. So a few years ago, I did this long bike ride from New York to D.C., raised a bunch of money as part of that. Last year's event was I, I did this long hike in Glacier National Park. We were hiking 10 to 15 miles a day for five days. Uh, so that was last year. And this year, I'm getting back on the bike and doing a brand new ride this time. We're going to go from Acadia National Park in Maine down to Boston. So it's another, it's about 300 mile ride. It's going to happen in five days time. And, and that's happening in September. So what I need from you is to support this effort. That's the whole idea. I do this crazy thing that takes a whole lot of energy and time and effort. And I got to train for it you know, all summer so that I don't die on the bike. And in exchange, you chip in. 75 bucks, 100 bucks, 25 bucks, whatever you can afford, ship it in to my climate ride fundraiser. And, uh, and then we raise a total of, I'm, I'm shooting for about $5,500 this year to go to excellent climate change organizations. Of course, all those donations are going to be tax deductible and they will go to fantastic causes. Now, what's special about this year's fundraiser is I, I got something special going in the works because it just so happens I am at this moment in time where what I could really go for is a membership drive for the show. I'm, I'm just being totally honest with you. Budget's a little bit tight these days, and, and we have these plans. We would like to expand. We'd like to do more things, uh, and we just can't. We don't have the time and the money and the capacity to make that happen. Uh, and as I've told you before, we're fighting, uh, we're, we're fighting the, the tide all the time. People cancel their memberships, not because they don't like the show, but because, you know, it's tough economic times or PayPal just cancels their card for some reason. They don't realize it, whatever, all kinds of reasons. 
So we need to get more members coming in than going out. That's how we maintain a healthy uh, show here. So what I thought was, I need to do both of these things. Can I do them at the same time? And here's the plan. You know, as always, I don't need a giant pile of money to run the show. I just need a whole lot of people willing to give six bucks, ten bucks a month to run the show. Climate ride, though, I actually do need a big pile of money. We got to raise, as I said, fifty five hundred dollars before the ride. So here's the plan: if you can chip into both, if you can donate a minimum of twenty five dollars to Climate Ride and sign up for a membership. In exchange for doing that, you can get a free Best of Left t-shirt. That's the incentive. So if if you're not aware, these t-shirts don't come out very often. They're excellent. Uh, They're made of recycled plastic bottles, if you can believe it, and yet they're amazingly soft. I own a couple of them. I wear them all the time. And uh, and so they're made from a, a company called Repair the World. They're fantastic. And the last time they were available was two years ago, and I just haven't brought them out since then. So if, you, if you've if you wanted one in the last two years, sorry, you just can't get them. But for this month, for this fundraiser, they are available. So here's what you do. You go to bestoftheleft.com. There's a big banner, top, front, middle, can't possibly miss it. You click that, and the page will tell you everything you need to do. But here's the basic breakdown. You click the button. You go donate to the climate ride. Like I said, minimum of $25. Hopefully, you'll want to chip in more than that. $50, $100 would be great. we got a, we got a long ways to go to raise $5,500. And then sign up as a membership just through the regular Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Once you do those two things, you just tell us what uh, item of apparel you would like, a unisex shirt, a female fitted shirt. Uh, if, if you sign up at the $10 level for a membership, you can actually get a hoodie, which is a very nice, uh, prestigious, luxurious hoodie, um, I, I must say. And then you hang around for three months because you know we can't have people signing up, getting their T-shirt, and immediately canceling. That's how we lose a bunch of money. But uh, you sign up this month, and then all of the T-shirts and sweatshirts go out in October, just in time for sweatshirt weather. So obviously, you're going to be hearing me talk all about this uh, for the next month, but all of you out there, help kick us off strong. Head over to Best of Left right now. Hit the button. You don't necessarily have to re-listen to what I just said. All the details are on the website. Uh, we, we got you covered. It'll guide you through. You can't possibly mess it up. So thanks in advance to everyone who is undoubtedly going to make this fundraiser just a barn-burning success. And again, if you'd like to leave comments for the show you know about David's voicemail or anything else you'd like, a reminder, the number 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame.
Oh, oh, oh. 